The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's episode is one that we have discussed in several occasions, but it's something that does not go away, and that is uh, the illicit antiquities trade, which has become a worldwide uh, illegal economy, if you wish. And uh, we have been talking about it in a variety of different contexts, and today we are going to be discussing the topic with uh, Dr. Sam Hardy, who is a research associate at the Center for Applied Archaeology at the University at University College in, uh, in the Institute of Archaeology in London. Um, we are going to deal with it from the inside to a large degree because Dr. Hardy's primary focus is on illicit antiquities, and he has done a tremendous amount of research and has been involved in this question for numerous years. Dr. Hardy earned a Ph.D. in law studies at the University of Sussex. His professional experience includes archaeological, historic, and ethnographic work in Cyprus, Greece, and Turkey, NGO work in the Netherlands, and teaching in the U.K. He investigates the destruction of cultural and community property, the trade in illicit antiquities, the politics and ethics of cultural heritage work, including archaeological excavations in occupied and secessionist territories, and precarious labor in the uh, cultural heritage industry. Dr. Hardy's work on the trade in illicit antiquities has focused on the looting and smuggling of cultural property during the Cyprus conflict. He has traced the development of the trade in parallel with the conflict. He has identified the relationships between antiquities looting, organized crime, and political violence, and has examined the impact of policing policy and clandestine rescue on the trade. Uh, Dr. Hardy, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you for having me. Well, one of the things that struck me in your bio is you are essentially providing a tremendous amount of information on the scope of this. I mean, when we're talking about organized crime, political violence, 
we are talking about the scope of an illicit trade that is much broader than most archaeologists even would would consider. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of the magnitude and the dimensions of this type of problem? I mean, obviously, precisely because it's an illicit trade, it's very difficult to get um, a scientific or um, or a, a reliable measure of the the scale of the trade and and particularly the scale of the involvement of of organised criminal elements or of political groups. I mean, it's definitely many, many, many millions, and a lot of estimates suggest billions of dollars every year as a as a business. And are there particular organizations or particular parts of the world in which this is really a major problem? I can, are these known or is it just at, at this point something that's, that's not even well documented? Certainly in, in recent years, the, the standout cases have been in, in the areas that uh, there have been standout conflicts. So um, Afghanistan and Iraq and more recently in uh, Syria and, and Egypt. But there are, there are very long-standing problems with very uh, complex historical relationships in, in the traditional countries that, that we've looked at as, as ancient civilizations. So, I mean, as well as Mesopotamia, uh, Iraq, then... Uh, Greece and, and Italy, because of their classical history, have been big targets of, of the trade. In our er earlier programs, we've talked about the obvious connection between uh, the age of uh, colonialist expansion, if you will, during the 18th, 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, specifically the dominance of the British Empire and, to a large degree, the Germans as well and, and the French, and uh, the fact that those uh, imperialist powers, colonialist powers, expanded across into the sort of cradles of civilization, into Mesopotamia, into Egypt, into Syria, Iraq. Um, and, and would you say that that's where it all started because they essentially had carte blanche to uh, first of all undertake the excavations and then to simply systematically move the findings and the artifacts outside of those uh, countries with impunity, that that's where it really, is that really where it began and how did it evolve since then? I mean, I think it, antiquities collecting more, more generally has a very long history simply because, because as humans we we appear to have a natural curiosity about our past and and a desire to to understand where we've come from. But but certainly, in terms of uh, an activity like antiquarianism and collecting, I think it really exploded along with, uh, as you were saying, along with colonialism and uh, like the the imperialist and nationalist desire to to create these these um, ethnic or or otherwise cultural histories for 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 perceived national groups um, 
and and especially with with colonialists' desires to to establish themselves as the inheritors of the the mantle of leading the world. So the way that the British um, perceived themselves as next in line to um, the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans uh, as as like a a civilizing force for the world. They they really got interested in in this idea of of these uh, huge cultural histories and and lineages. So so yeah, they they started collecting. So effectively, what you're saying, and this is this is a concept I don't think many of us are familiar with, is that sort of they are the natural successors in promoting the tenets of Western civilization so that it would would seem almost logical that you went from, say, the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, and then on to the classical world of the Greeks and the Romans, and uh, through through the periods of, of colonization, and ultimately the British sort of, for lack of a better word, world, word felt that it was their a right to continue this tradition and to move these artifacts in and out in part because they were the successors to the Western tradition and because they wanted to spread it around. So it, I suppose, would have been within the context of colonialism innocent enough. And of course, uh, we know where that went to. Is that is that pretty fair summary of where it went? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they obviously the, it was very convenient for them um, when they were trying to excuse slavery and and sure. colonial inequality and and occupation those kinds of things that they could um they could present themselves in that light and that's the same that's that's the same reason that um you have neoclassical architecture that that resembles or or brings to mind uh greek and roman uh, designs in colonial contexts like uh like British Imperial spaces or the British Museum's columns, those kinds of things. So it, it's just sort of a national transference of of the traditions that were developed in the classical world. So I, I guess, in a sense, if, if you're a Western person, you sort of see this as a continuum, right? Uh, unfortunately, we're we're generally educated or. Um, because of the information we have, yeah, we, we, we come to see ourselves that way. And so let's let's jump ahead a little bit into the actual antiquities trade. So obviously with the establishment of museums, uh, is that the key, uh, key transition, the one that sort of inadvertently launched a larger scale commerce, if you will, in illicit trading? Is, is that how it worked with, with, with the earliest museums, their development and their successes and their appeals across a broad uh, array of populations and economic systems that that would have encouraged illicit trading and when would when would this when did this really start if there is such a, such a thing that it really started or when did it uh, accelerate to the scale that that, that uh, we're starting to get familiar with well so I mean I think it would be the, the kind of Second half of the the nineteenth century, right. where you were getting yeah, where you were getting these museums and those kinds of things, um, and and 
mass education and and people coming to have the understanding of themselves um, that really massively expanded the interest and and people's personal and financial investment in um, in the antiquarian approach. And of course, at that time, I guess it was sort of given a carte blanche and a blanket cover to basically continue along those lines that it was perfectly le legitimate for, oh, say the British or the Germans or the French or the Dutch or Portuguese or whoever who were actually uh, engaged in colonizing these countries like Egypt, like uh, Iraq, like Syria, Jordan, uh, Israel, that they felt that the, that was part of the routine. I mean, that, that the, they were essentially recovering this information and moving it to places which were hubs for civilization at that time, specifically London, Paris, to some degree New York and the New World. And, and that's how they moved along with it. And I guess it was considered perfectly okay. Yeah, although there are, there, are, there, are, there are some hints that they, they knew exactly what they were doing. So when the, when the British were excavating in the Ottoman Empire... Right. The the Ottoman Empire made it its antiquities law stricter to try and protect its resources. And I mean, again, they, they had their own interests for doing it. It wasn't purely a, a selfless desire to protect cultural property, but they were introducing legislation to to protect and preserve their, their resources. And at one point they withdrew the license from from a British excavation. Which which had previously had thirty workers on it. So when was and, that? Uh, I think that was. It, it was certainly in, in the second half of the the nineteenth century. I can't, I'm afraid I can't remember the year off the top of my head. But, so that was the first uh, basic uh, refusal or the first word of opposition to this inveterate, if you will, call it looting or smuggling out of the country, where the Ottomans put their foot down and said, no, not, no, not so fast. Is that is that essentially what we're saying? Yeah, except they gave a one-year license to carry on the excavation. So, uh -huh. when the British, so when the British went back the next year, instead of taking 30 workers, they took 300. Oh, my goodness. So they were going to maximize the production and sort of in one final push, they were going to maximize the information yield, get it out before things uh, things got kind of difficult for them, I guess. Yeah, huh? yeah, precisely, yeah. Uh, and and when, when the British took, uh, took Cyprus, they initially had it only to administer the island rather than uh, to control it directly as their own territory. Um, but they didn't continue to to honour the Ottomans' antiquities laws because the Ottomans' antiquities laws were stricter than their own. Aha! And of course, so it's important to keep in mind that in the late 19th century, the Ottomans were certainly a major force to be reckoned with, and mm. what they said went in many parts of the world. So would we say almost that that was the sort of the beginning of the end, where there was some scrutiny put in and, and, and antiquities laws were initiated, and uh, at least there started to be some kind of a codification of what you could and couldn't do? Yes, yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, I mean our, our laws, the British imperial laws, were with them themselves improving, getting stricter, more scientific, and and yeah, they were was, developing, was, right? 
yeah, there was a, I guess it was a, a careful balance between scientific interests and uh, colonial interests. And so this was sort of it, it was it was a gradual development, I suppose, so that by the early part of the 20th century, certainly here in the United States, we were already starting to get antiquities protection laws. And I suspect that in Britain and in the uh, sort of the waning stages of the colonialist empires, uh, those sorts of things were kicked into effect as well, I suppose. Yes, yes, certainly. It, like the, the early 20th century is when when things finally became uh, more professional than than colonial. And we're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be back with our special guest, Dr. Sam Hardy of the uh, Center for Applied Archaeology at UCL, University College London, Institute of Archaeology, right after these words. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. Why do most women who are actively dating have to know what will the future hold? While for many types of guys it just means what's going to happen tonight? The Dating Revolution is a new kind of show about dating. It's not necessarily about finding Mr. Right. It's more about staying in control of what you want and having fun while dating. Your host, Heather Jones, is a casual dating expert and will provide the tips and tricks both women and men need to navigate the ever-changing world of dating. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We are uh, back with our very special guest, Dr. Sam Hardy, a research associate at uh, University College London, who is a specialist in the illicit antiquities trade, and we're discussing its emergence in historical perspective and as a setup to uh, discussing the contemporary problems that are plaguing the world with illicit uh, antiquities and uh, bringing into conflict a lot of very traditional and uh, venerable institutions like museums and what their roles might be in the in this uh, particular issue. Uh, but let's get back to the uh, early part of the 20th, 20th century when legislation was instituted 
in various parts of the world, most specifically in the eastern Mediterranean area where the Ottomans actually put their foot down and started to uh, regulate the trade. And Dr. Hardy, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit of, of how it developed subsequent to that time, the early 20th century, in the eastern Mediterranean and uh, how that uh, illicit trade grew and, and what the relationship was between regulation and actual smuggling of the artifacts outside into the, uh, into the greater world. Well, I mean, throughout the Eastern Mediterranean, the, the states were, were getting far more um, protective of their resources. Um, the, with the, the independent Greek state being very keen to protect its cultural heritage because it was um, a, a nationalist resource in in that sense that they they perceived it as their ethnic heritage and it helped them to construct a nationalist identity um, and with the 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 newly born Turkish state that had uh, come out of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire right trying trying to establish itself uh, again as as a unified state, they were they were very careful to protect the heritage that that they found convenient. So they were quite keen to protect antiquities. Unfortunately, a lot of mosques in Greece and a lot of churches in Turkey were not necessarily considered um, national heritage worthy of protection. Right. Um, but yeah, but they were certainly continually stricter in in legislation in 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 cyprus it was slightly odd because british rule meant in some cases that uh protection of cultural property was seen as a colonial imposition rather than a community supported endeavor to to preserve their understanding of their own past you raise a, a very critical issue here, and it's one that I think a lot of people haven't quite put together. I'm just starting to understand it right now. It seems to be there would seem to be some kind of correlation or connection between the initiation of self-determination self -determination movements and independence movements, say, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, possibly tied into the developments in World War One and the uh, the prohibition of illicit smuggling because, uh, as you say, uh, cultural heritage and, and, and nationalist fervor and self-determination, all these factors politically seem to go hand in hand. Is, is, uh, is, is that a, a fair observation? Yes, yes, that's a yeah, very good summary of, of, the, of the point where these things were all coming out at once. Right, they're all happening at the same time. So take us, take us further. So how do the museums factor into this? Because forever, even you know, when I was younger, I mean, it was just accepted that uh, the big museums here in New York, in London, in Paris, in in Vienna, and throughout the world were getting their antiquities from sources that seemed to be muddled. Um, there were foundations, certainly. There were foundations named after great philanthropists or benefactors uh, here in the United States. The Carnegies were certainly involved in that. Um, how does that tie in, and was it just sort of an unwritten 
law that you didn't ask how the artifacts got to the museum. They just got there, and you should be appreciative of the fact that they were there on display and for your edification. Yeah, I mean, even even in the the nineteenth century, um, the British Museum had uh, had acquired, and and at the at the very beginning of the twentieth century, before. Uh, Eastern Mediterranean laws had become incredibly strict. Um, the British Museum was acquiring acquiring material uh, where it had to turn a blind eye to uh, to gross impropriety. Right. Um, and and even even the Ottoman Museum had to or felt it had to acquire its own material, like things that people had looted from the Ottoman Empire, it would then have to to buy back. Right. But but there were yeah, there were, at some level there was an appreciation that what they were doing was uh wrong, but at another level or or with other groups, people felt they had right on their side. Uh, again, yes. Partly yes. because of this imperialist belief in their own superiority. Right. So, so I'm guessing that, that there was a period where, yes, it was being understood that this was wrong. But on the other hand, there might have been some justification for it. So you get into this model where, OK, we're not going to ask where the artifacts came from. We're going to get them. We know it's probably not right, but we're going to sort of passively condone it because it shows up in our display windows and in our connect, uh, collections. So at what point do these large institutions, these large venerable institutions, the museums and the research institutions, at what point do they actually say, okay, enough, we need provenienced information and we, we are, we're not going to, uh, to abide by this anymore? That's a relatively recent development, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's surprisingly recent, really, considering um, how at odds it is with, with their, their own state's laws. Um, so I think the, the Louvre, say, right has has been very strict on not accepting or has been relatively strict on not accepting relatively unclear um antiquities since the 50s but but in that so, sense only since the 50s and that sounds sounds to me like it's pretty early on because a lot of the institutions i mean just trace this kind of uh, denial of or, or resistance to accepting these collections in the seventies and eighties. Yeah, I, I think in some senses we're relatively fortunate in Europe because it does seem like some of the the big American institutions have the the kind of the the, the culture of philanthropy, which should be a, an amazing thing, mm. but it does mean that a lot of institutions feel the need to turn a blind eye to donations right regardless of of where those donations come from and that's uh, that's a problem that's still ongoing right i mean it's it's yeah, like look the yeah. other way and stick your hand out anyway right yeah it's it's either either they they believe that they're saving this stuff from the black market correct or they believe that they're um saving it for the nation or um or they think they can do it justice but um 
or obviously sometimes it's a matter of uh, more personal relationships between uh, cultural heritage professionals and antiquities collectors and traders but um, but yeah there does there does seem to be an undeniable uh, attitude that at some level at some ultimately conscious level they know that what they're doing is questionable politely yeah right um, but they carry on doing it anyway yeah and there doesn't seem to be any real consensus at this point from what I can see, and, and you certainly know much more about this than I do, it just seems like it's an individual institution's decision that the dynamic that they have between receiving collections and uh, a, taking a policy on that is, is, is an individualized institutional decision, is it? Is it not? Yes, and I, I, the British Museum, I guess, it's easier for the British Museum to take the high road because it looted so much stuff so <laughs> in early. the past, yeah. Um, and and people come to see the things that it it acquired under questionable circumstances long ago, right? Um, whereas I, I guess with some of the the big American institutions, their collections are somewhat more recent sure. and their their competition for footfall and funding and those kinds of things um, are more dependent upon them attracting custom what about the question of repatriation uh, it's a, it's a good question um, it's it's one that is sometimes more difficult than uh, its advocates uh, would like to, to admit, and sometimes far easier than the museums would like to admit. Um, so, so for example, at the moment in some in some conflict zones, it would be genuinely difficult to to return looted cultural property because there would be genuine questions about the security of that material. But a lot of the time, uh, it really would be quite simple and quite beneficial for both for for both of the countries, both the the country where the museum has the looted material and the country that was looted, um, for the stuff to go back. Where do you see where where, for example, is the British Museum with this? Are they repatriating anything? Are they coming into? Uh, questions or contacts with many of the countries that had been, for lack of a better word, looted in the early part of the 20th century? Are they coming to any kinds of agreements with host countries? And I, I think I think the British Museum has the wonderful privilege of arguing that it is illegal for it to return looted cultural property. Aha. Uh -huh. Um, because there's no proven, provenience at all any, anymore, and it, there's nobody to return it to. Is that is that what the um, argument? I, is? I I I believe there's there's a a direct positive piece of legislation that prohibits it. Aha. Uh -huh. um, now some might suggest that if the British Museum asked our legislators to change that law, right. 
um, that it would be difficult for the legislators to refuse. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, but at the moment, as things stand, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to see a change in the relationship between the British Museum and uh, the countries from which it, a lot of its material came. And in, in many cases, as we, we well know from contemporary events, a lot of those countries are in uh, rather difficult political situations so that they probably have higher priority issues to deal with. And I'm thinking specifically of Syria and Egypt at this particular point in time. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly those countries have uh, have higher priorities and, and they would be uh, countries where it would be incredibly difficult or practically impossible to return material because, you know, th- there is no security there. But um, say in, e- in, in, uh, in Greece, where there is um, still a massive campaign for the return of the Parthenon marbles, right? The, there's also a lack of protection for some of their existing museums. And, and obviously they have in incredibly difficult, they're, they're in incredibly difficult economic straits. So it's difficult to, uh, to completely separate their desire for the return of looted cultural property from certain elite in, uh, elite people's desire to distract the population from more fundamental economic concerns. Right. So and yet, and yet by the same token, you have a situation where countries like Greece and Egypt have an economic base that is built on these things. Heritage tourism and, and uh, antiquity is uh, a bedrock of uh, the Egyptian and Greek economy. And in, in particular times of economic stress which they're, and political upheaval, which they're experiencing now, certainly in Egypt, uh, those would be part of the solution to some of their problems, I would think. Absolutely. I mean, it is one of the one of the truly sustainable e- economic resources that, that a country can have, right. especially in terms of bringing money into the country from from richer countries, tourism. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to have to take another quick break. And uh, when we return, we're going to explore some other aspects of the illegal trade in antiquities when we return after these messages. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Adoption changes a family forever for the adopters as well as the adoptees. There are many adjustments that need to be made from lifestyle to financial 
and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host Jordan Kimmel is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus Drug Discount Card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance, and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies. But 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Everyone is eligible for RX Savings Plus. There are no age or income restrictions and no paperwork. Simply print a card and start saving on your prescriptions. Start saving today. Enroll and print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word talk radio to 96 you're listening to indiana jones myth reality and 21st century archaeology with dr joseph schuldenrein to be a part of our discussion today please call 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to joseph schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com now back to the program We're back with our uh, special guest, Dr. Sam Hardy of the Center for Applied Archaeology at UCL University College London at the Institute of Archaeology. And our topic is the antiquities trade, its evolution, and its connection to uh, larger socioeconomic forces in the world. And we've been discussing and tracking the uh, nature of these connections between looting, illicit trades, and uh, the nature of, of nations, in a sense. And, and, and Sam has done some very interesting work in Cyprus, where, of course, for, for years, there has been an ongoing uh, conflict between the Turkish and the Greek uh, demographics, if you will, of that island. And uh, Sam's research involves tracking the relationship between illicit uh, antiquities dealing and the conflict itself. Sam, why don't you tell us a little bit about your research and how it hooks into exactly what we've been talking about for this past 45 minutes? Well, uh, I guess the the trade in Cyprus emerged in a very similar way to the to the trades in other countries, especially naturally in the countries that were colonized. Um, but as you see the the communal tensions increase and the political conflict emerge, the antiquities trade got um, and, and archaeology more generally got completely bound up with the the conflict itself. So um, instead of having a situation where 
some poor people of every community lose their antiquities as a as a way to supplement their income you ended up and and rich members of every community buying them to to show off their connoisseurship and and those kinds of things you got to a situation where organized criminal elements and political extremist political groups were heading up the trade and and communities involvement in the trade was more dependent upon the the structure of the conflict than than just natural economic interests in that sense was it uh in part a question of uh, establishing their roots their identities um because obviously the island of cyprus had had conflict for a very very long time between the turks and the greeks and was the were the antiquities taken uh to to some degree to reflect the uh the natural sovereignty of one particular group over the other in certain parts of the island or was that did not not enter into it no that was uh, that was certainly part of it even before the conflict emerged so right. um in the 19th century some greek cypriot collectors emerged precisely because they wanted to save their their national heritage from from uh british and other collectors who wanted to export it from the island right and, and and partly because of this connection this nationalist uh connection you ended up with a situation where uh, greek cypriots identified more with the the archaeological resources the antiquities on the island and turkish cypriots identified with them somewhat less so greek cypriots were or Greek Cypriot elites were very keen on collecting the antiquities, um, and at the same time, when when the the conflict finally emerged, a lot of Turkish Cypriots ended up in in enclaves like ghettos where they were dependent upon aid to survive. And wow. one of the ways they um, they made a living was by looting antiquities and selling them out of the enclaves. Now, how long had that been going on? Well, the, um, the, there was a somewhat increased trade uh, earlier, but, but certainly when, when the Turkish Cypriots went into the enclaves in 1963, 1974, there was a massive increase in looting. Uh, because they had they had no other means of subsistence apart from the aid. And who were they? Lasted. Where were they looting? Uh, who were they trading to? Uh, they were just sort of exporting this infor- these these materials into Europe into the mainland. Well, it's it's a it's a very interesting and, and murky matter because um, the a lot of the enclaves were were protected by or controlled. By right. paramilitaries, by mm-hmm. Turkish Cypriot paramilitaries, and they were blockaded by Greek Cypriot paramilitaries. So, a huge amount of this material can only have left the enclaves by passing through uh, two lines of of armed groups, right, including 
the enemy group in that sense. So there, there must have been a, some kind of either corruption or connection, some kind of uh, tax or bribe system for them to accept this this material coming through the paramilitary lines or or, or going or leaving through uh, organized criminal or political elements. So this was as much a source of the conflict as any other element in the uh, in the domestic situation, I would take it. Yeah, that it's again, it's difficult to measure exactly. And and it's, it's very obvious that Greek Cypriots also continued to loot and that they um, they took advantage of, of some of the more peculiar policies of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly there, there's, there's absolutely clear evidence that Turkish Cypriot paramilitaries and Turkish intelligence had some involvement in the antiquities trade and were making money out of it that they used um, to fund their activities. Now, that war passed into sort of a Cold War status in the late 70s, if I'm not mistaken, or the mid-70s, and and has heated up, actually heated up a few years ago, sort of for a short period. Well, now, and now, of course, uh, Cyprus is also in some kind of trouble because of their ec- economics, but how has the uh, trade in illicit antiquities changed from, say, the act of conflict to the present? I mean, it, it's still a significant problem on on both sides of the island. Although it's it's a greater problem in the the northern part, which is occupied by the Turkish military, because the Turkish Cypriots don't have significant control. I mean, uh, the the criminal elements who who run the trade are very well connected with um, very powerful elements within the the state, which makes it difficult for the Turkish Cypriots to to protect their their cultural heritage. And it's ongoing. Yes. Um, I mean, they, they, they are doing what they can, um, but, but certainly there is continued looting, partly because of the lack of, um, successful policing or the lack of sufficient successful policing. And the fact that it's such a divided country that uh, it's effectively governed by one entity on one side and the other and another entity on the other, even though um, there are areas of overlap. Is that correct? Yeah, the the the, the administrations refuse to recognize each other. So their police yes. refuse to recognize each other and refuse to work together. Right. Um, which, which makes... Uh, policing very difficult. There's some evidence of Turkish Cypriot police driving their own suspects across the the green line so that uh, Greek Cypriot police can arrest them. Oh my goodness. Um, it's, it's, it's It's a really 
incredibly difficult environment for, for them all to work in. Um, and, uh, Turkish Cypriot archaeologists are... Um, it's very difficult for them to conduct their own work in, in terms of cultural preservation or protection. They're, they're denied the opportunity or they're threatened uh, if they try to, to backfill old archaeological trenches. And so which this, means, is, this is still a very active issue, obviously. Yeah, but, but the, the this kind of blacklist and boycott policy means that a lot of sites are left exposed. Uh, we, and, which, and the looting goes on. Yeah. Wow. Now, are there parallels to that situation currently? I mean, obviously, Cyprus is a unique case, but um, do you, have you seen or have you experienced other situations in, analogous to that? I, I, I mean, obviously, some of the the most bizarre elements are unique to the island, but in right. in terms of the the way occupation and control and protection are all tied up together. Uh, Israel and Palestine have very difficult situations for, for protecting cultural property. Right. And, um, and certainly in any conflict zone, say, say, say in Syria now, there are definitely armed groups who are involved in the looting that it's been it's been confirmed by smugglers and by buyers of antiquities right and how but, uh, and we have no way of knowing how that develops although the situation in iraq was uh, obviously also very similar to that um and during the beginning phases of the uh of the occupation by the U.S., um, the museum was looted. Um, it's when chaos breaks loose. I mean, I, I, I suspect that the most logical source of thievery and and uh, potential wealth, I would suspect, is from going into the museum, breaking cases, and taking out uh, invaluable artifacts. Yeah, it's it's a, they they're a very good way. Um, they're a very efficient way of, of transporting wealth because right. an, an artif- you, you can stick an artifact in your pocket and it can be worth thousands of dollars or many, many thousands of dollars. And because so, of the hidden economy, uh, it, it will go to an interested party, no questions asked, right? Yeah, it's, it's very difficult for them to patrol, to patrol the borders. Uh, again, using Syria as, as an example, there's pretty much no border control. So, um, and, and, and also thousands of refugees a day. A day. So um, this stuff just flows across without any control. Yeah, I, I was going to say, and, and, and this, this unusual marriage of countries in turmoil and antiquities of, of great monetary value suggests that this is not a problem that's going to be solved anytime soon. No, un- unfortunately, it's nowhere near. Um, it's it's one of the reasons we really need to. I mean, apart from supporting local protection efforts where possible, of course. Um, but we we need to tighten up our own controls because um, because they are ones that you know we have efficient police forces, we have efficient border controls, uh, 
we could, if we chose, improve uh, our own regulations and, and limit our imports of illicit cultural property from these vulnerable countries, but which would the, help those countries right. uh, d uh, redevelop quickly at the end of conflict um, because they would have the, this possibility for sustainable tourism. So where do you see this going in the next 10 years? I mean, it seems to me like we've taken a major step backward as some of these countries have erupted into yet new stages of violence and political confrontation and uncertainty and dictatorships. Uh, this is almost a step backward, I would think. Yeah, and I, I fear it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, uh, in the sense that it's it's entirely... An, relatively easily possible for us to improve our legislation it shouldn't be so difficult to improve the situation but but we're not in control here yeah i mean we we only control our own borders That's and correct. this material can can very 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 easily uh leave those countries especially because because it's often associated with the, the regimes so in egypt when they've been trying to protect of course um the, this stuff a lot of people have been destroying it, not not even for economic gain, but just because politically they want to attack the symbols of the, the regime. Of course. And and uh, I would even argue that our borders are not uh, are not controllable either, because by dint of the fact that we're not so rigid about. Well, we are rigid to some degree, but certainly um, there are innumerable possibilities of smuggling items into certainly this country and into Western Europe without that much difficulty. I mean, some of yeah, it yeah. is clearly going to get through irrespective Absolutely. of the laws. And on that very sad note, I'm <laughs> afraid we're going to have to wrap up this discussion. I'm hopeful, I suppose, uh, that in the long term, these conflicts will hopefully get resolved in, in a positive way. Of course, that certainly doesn't look like it's in the on the horizon right now. But in any case, I want to thank my very special guest, Dr. Sam Hardy of University College London Institute of Archaeology for enlightening us on the nature of the illicit antiquities trade and, and, and alerting us to the difficulties that we're up against even now. And I thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.